morning, everybody. Thank you for coming on Saturday morning. Always that hardest session to decide to attend. We appreciate that you're here. Um, we know lots of you have passion for this topic of food in the galleries and are probably working on various aspects of that back at your home institution. So I'd like to begin, um, I'll just introduce myself to start. Uh, Michelle Moon, I am the Chief of Programs at the Tenement Museum in New York City, but we've worked with food and museums for a long time. Uh, and my co-presenter here is Michelle Reed. Do you want to introduce yourself, Michelle, and say where you're from? Absolutely. I'm Michelle Reed. I'm the Executive Director at Heritage Square Foundation. It's a cultural site in downtown Phoenix, the last remaining residential block. And you'll see some photos in a moment. And we have a, a third presenter who could not be with us today, who actually inspired and organized our session, but uh, Mary Madden from the Museum of uh, Kansas History was unable at the last minute to join us because of the arrival of this little fellow that we see on screen, uh, her granddaughter. So she is now a uh, grandson. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> she is now visiting with her grandson. Uh, Mary was inspired to put this session together by a story that she did uh, send ahead. So we're going to share her story with you. Then Michelle will describe some of the work going on at her institution in Phoenix. And finally, I'll talk about some of the major trends impacting how museums are presenting food these days. So that's our plan. That'll take us partway into the session, and then by the time you've kind of gone through your first bag of M&Ms, we can have some discussion because we're interested in uh, running this as a roundtable session so that people are able to discuss either amongst yourselves or perhaps in a large group, and we've got some questions for you to dig into. So with that all being said, I'm going to switch over so I can sit and read Mary's notes about the slides and her really fun story that will explain why we have M&Ms. So one moment. Okay, so Mary's, Mary wanted to put the session together because she found herself um, thinking over some of the driving questions museums are dealing with today, recognizing that the structure of society is changing, our food habits are changing, and that inevitably affects museums, and that foodways have lots of interpretive value. We tend to want to talk about food, food history, food manufacturing, food culture, and it becomes awkward to do that without involving food itself. And finally, uh, Mary's been exploring ways of accommodating food exhibits and demonstrations, not just in museum spaces, but specifically within galleries. So Mary, um, as, we, as you heard, she sends her regrets for not being here, and here is her first grandchild, Sully Kaplan. There he is again. Um, he was born on Friday, and she's uh, thankful that we're here carrying on in her absence. But Mary wanted to tell her story that came from her work on the next slide at the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka. It's a division of the Kansas State Historical Society. She began her career there when the state was building the new museum in 1984, and she's now in the process of planning for a total remodel of that new museum gallery. The next slide. The Historical Society includes the State Archives, Historic Preservation, and Historic Sites offices an 1848 Baptist Mission building, and 80 acres with a nature trail. And Mary is the Museum and Education Division Director there. And for the next slide, you'll see the Kansas Museum of History's traditional gallery with 20,000 square feet interpreting 12,000 years of Kansas history. This is a recreated Wichita Grass Lodge. 
In the next slide, you can see an Oregon to California covered wagon. And in the next one, the oldest Santa Fe steam locomotive in existence. In June of 2017, the Mars Corporation approached the museum to see if they were interested in a donation of 10 by 20 mural made completely of M&Ms. The Mars plant in Topeka is the only plant to manufacture caramel M&Ms, which you're enjoying this morning. The employees made this mural to launch the new project. At the time, they claimed the 200-square-foot mural comprised of 185,000 M&Ms set a Guinness Book of World Records. Only later did they sadly realize that it had to be completely edible to qualify to meet the requirements, and it wasn't. The M&Ms were glued to a backing board, so it could not take the prize. The curatorial staff of the museum was not impressed with the size or with the distinction. Food in the gallery? No way. But in the next slide, even with the objections, Mary's initial reaction was to accept it for the museum. Um, collection. She says, after all, I'd seen the jelly bean portrait of Ronald Reagan at the Re Ronald Reagan Museum in Simi Valley years ago. I'm not sure how it's faring today, but after receiving 12 M&M panels, the size and condition made me rethink that decision. A discussion with the curators resulted in a compromise. So they decided to display it for six weeks and watch it carefully for any potential infestation. We did joke, she says, that it could lead to a spike in diabetes in the local mouse population. <laughs> the mural remained on display from late September to early November 2017, which included the weekend of the Topeka Chocolate Festival. The company did not want it back, so we sent it to the landfill, Mary says, after thorough documentation. Um, so they had to uh, maintain it, glue the M&Ms on the seams wherever they fell off, and it, uh, it required a lot of care and feeding. But in the end, on the last slide, Mary says, um, we felt there were many benefits to this project. We saw, I think it's skipping one more forward. We saw an uptick in attendance and had a lot of, oh, the video is there. We didn't think the video was there. Um, so about the video, Oh, are you? <laughs> Occupational hazard. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> How many glue strings did you need to? <laughs> it's quite a quite a project. Uh, so the, they, the team made this fun time-lapse video to go with the exhibit, and they continued to present this on a large screen for a year afterwards near the entrance to the main gallery. Um, so you can see them conducting that maintenance. That's, and that's the last one. Um, so Mary's, Mary's assessment was that there were many benefits to the project. Um, the museum saw an uptick in attendance, had a lot of local buzz, and publicity included a guess how many M&Ms in the mural contest and the winner went home with 11 pounds of caramel M&Ms. <laughs> this was our foot in the door, she says, with the Mars Corporation. They were thrilled with the display and have been a supportive partner ever since. And we never witnessed any type of infestation. Um, so Mary, as a side note, says, if other museums have hosted edible displays or artifacts, how they have dealt with them. 
so this is one story, and it was a story that caused Mary to really begin thinking about the role of objects, uh, including food or incorporating food, in the galleries, a topic that brings in events, it brings in a daily interpretation, and it brings in artifacts and museum objects themselves. So we convened a little conversation around this, and Michelle Reed had lots to share from her own experience in Phoenix where um, as she's pulling up her slides, I'll just share that I got to visit during AAM last year, and the site that she works at is a wonderful complex of different facilities, and I think makes for a terrific case study in how food can fit in. Thank you, Michelle, and good morning again. Our situation is a little bit different in that our gallery is a historic house museum. Um, and as you can imagine, interpreting food in a house is absolutely imperative. Um, it is the last remaining residential block of the city of Phoenix. We are the only institution currently telling the history of Phoenix. Um, this is a photograph of what we call our crowning jewel. There are an additional 10 historic, um, fully restored buildings that go along with this, but the majority of our interpretation for the last uh, 35 years anyway has taken place in this house. I was fortunate, I guess we'll use that word, to be hired on at a time when the institution was moving from full volunteer management to professional staff. Um, and as such, the volunteers really wanted to hold on to some of the programming that they had. Um, and some of that programming included living history. Um, Living history is fantastic. I am not sure that what we used to do I would call it fantastic, but they thoroughly used the house. Um, and it was kind of strange because while they used the house to interpret food and make pies in the kitchen and lemonade in the kitchen and sit in the artifacts, they also were actively collecting, documenting, and creating a permanent collection. So for any of you out there in the curatorial world, you know that that's kind of um, taboo, conflict of interest there. But that was a program that they were really interested in keeping. Um, so we had to find ways to manage that. And when I started, we had no food policy whatsoever. We had no collections policy whatsoever. Um, free for all was sort of the name of the game. And so we had to start looking at how food was going to be treated in that house in particular and whether or not we had ways and areas where food could be properly interpreted without um, jeopardizing the, the preservation of the collection. At about the same time, um, we also, we belong to the city of Phoenix. Um, I work for a nonprofit that manages the building in cooperation with the city of Phoenix, and the city council decided that the Rawson House Museum should be the city protocol house. Um, a protocol house means that city council members, elected officials, are able to use that space for entertaining at their leisure. Um, that determination was made in 2009, 2010. In 2011 then, our institution created a policy to try to manage that, as in what does that mean? Can you actually come in and have a reception in the dining room? Can you have a caterer come into the house? Um, Thankfully, the city officials must not know that we're the protocol house. We, we try to make this plaque as small as humanly possible. Um, it's never been tested during my tenure, and yet we remain the protocol house, and that is a scenario that we had to create policies around, as in if the mayor says, I'm going to do a cocktail reception in the Rawson house, we are required to accommodate that. So 
as we are trying to get away from some of these um, uses involving food in the house, what we found was that the desires of our audience were going the other direction. We give guided tours of this house. People want to take their coffee. They want to take their big gulp. Um, they, they, in some cases, will walk away rather than leave a vintage Starbucks on the front porch or in the gift shop. Um, and, and we knew that we had to find ways to um, show how food was a huge part of the culture um, of the people who occupied this house, and then also give them an opportunity to enjoy their food and beverages somewhere on the campus, if not right there in uh, what we call the gallery. One way we have done this, we followed a, a model from Winterthur. We took the traditional furnishings out of the dining room and did a plate expectations exhibit. This is actually up right now. Um, we talk about Victorian dining. We bring in a number of artifacts, things that have been relegated to the pantry for years and years and talk about how they would have been used, how this would have been part um, of the experience in the house. We also give guests free reign of this room, so it's a little bit different than the guided tour model where they are able to walk around and enjoy it on their own. This next slide is one of my favorites. If you notice the um, the, the curator for this exhibit was very savvy. The long list on the left-hand side is the list of Victorian dining don'ts, and the list on the right is Victorian dining do's. Um, so again, talking about how food would have been perceived and presented um, in this house and used as a social tool in some respects. One of the things that's interesting about our house is that we know very little about the owners. We have very few significant pieces. Um, the only thing, the only oral history or any documentation we have at all is of tea being served in the turret, and so part of plate expectations is um, to depict tea service in that area. But again, we realized that this was a small step. It helped a little bit, but we still needed to give our audiences an opportunity to um, experience food and enjoy food in the same space. Thankfully, uh, one of our tenants uh, moved out of one of the other bungalows, and when we were re-envisioning it, we decided to make it a food okay gallery. Um, we also, it has a kitchen, you know, again, it's another house. It's a um, uh, 1901 bungalow. And so we filled it with reproduction artifacts, eBay artifacts, things that people can enjoy and touch. Um, this is the kitchen area. That top left, we have historic cookbooks and pencils and cards where if you want to reclaim a lost recipe, you can sit in the kitchen and do that. Some, a food quote, um, a place to relax. This is in the Stevens bungalow, and so that space is, we welcome, we welcome food. Not only that, but we've, we sell food in there as well and make it available. Um, this is a new corner that we've set up where you can purchase food in that area and carry it through that bungalow um, at leisure. And so we, we're continuing to, to work with ways to manage food. Because our collection is not necessarily significant, we may be at a point where 
we can rethink how we make the rules in the House. Um, we're going to have to do some, some collections policy changing in order to do that. We also have to be careful because when I was brought in, I put a stop to all of that um, along with the professional staff, and you have to be careful how you go back on that. But understanding the situation that we are in, we can certainly use the House to interpret food in more creative ways. We have to be thoughtful about that, and we have to communicate that really well to our board, to our volunteers, to our staff as well. Currently, we do allow water um, to go through the House Museum, but nothing else. And every week, the custodial crew will come to me um, showing me a spill here or a spill there. And once in a while, we do find the guests with the Snapple kind of tucked up underneath their jacket or vest. And so... Um, it's something that we are always aware of. We are always working with ways to create a better guest experience um, while being good stewards of the collection um, without being over the top about it, given the fact that we have maybe six important pieces in the house and the rest. Um, it was just a dollhouse that was decorated. And so with that, I think Michelle's going to give us some ideas on how you might create a food policy to be more um, lenient and include food. Thank you. Um, I might, if I can stand up, I can maybe just tab forward on your left. Of course. Uh, might be easier. Okay. Um, so I, I will talk a bit about food um, in galleries. I can't necessarily say that I have concrete policy suggestions yet, although the session uh, at AAM this year that Michelle participated in along with Rebecca Mead and um, a few other presenters did uh, show that there is work ongoing to redefine and clarify food policies for museums and I encourage you to Google that up and uh, I've looked at it online and it's a good work that's coming along to really take a critical look at how we need to manage these things for today's culture. So Okay, so I think the, oh, it's um, for some reason not showing up on the screen. Do you know what to do there? Sorry. <laughs> Did he say escape and view show or something? There we go. Great. Um, so the question that, that we began with was, do, do things need to change? We've had one set of conventions that have come down from the preservation field and historic house setting field for generations now that have really asked us to treat these spaces as if they were fine art galleries with um, irreplaceable objects on view. And those are, as you know, very rigorous standards and exist for many good reasons that we'll look into. Um, but we're also facing a contemporary moment in which we're recognizing that food habits are changing. We want to capitalize on the interpretive value of food, certainly talking about and presenting food, but also the sensory richness and the memorable nature of actually tasting and eating food. Um, and we're at a time when we're exploring creative solutions for lots of kinds of access, including access to food programming. So one of, the one of the things happening in our changing food culture is that we now eat all the time and everywhere. And there was a day when we had the you know, traditional 
um, meal around the table, and many people had that lifestyle. But at this point, we now have snacking throughout the day. The meal occasions that are formal are fewer, and the graze and grab-and-go habits are bigger. So at this point, snacking is about half of all occasions on which people eat. There's some fun statistics there about how many people have five or more snacks a day, and um, I don't think it's terribly unusual. In fact, our ASLH schedule seems to have a couple of uh, additional meals in there. Uh, we eat on the fly and fluidly. I like this notion, based on a whim or a craving or perhaps walking by a wonderful display like the one we saw in the bungalow in Phoenix and saying, hey, that looks good. Um, we eat everywhere and anywhere, and we can buy food in so many more places. So just to kind of give that some thought, our classic three meals a day no longer is the norm. Um, the norm instead is becoming something like what you can find right down the street here in Kansas City at the Alamo Draft House, which was started by a couple uh, in the, I believe in the 90s, who were movie lovers and wanted to open up a movie revival house, but really saw no reason why you should have to sneak your food into the movie theater. So they created a whole menu of full meals and beer where you could sit on their specially designed chairs with a table in front of you and enjoy uh, having snacks while you eat your dinner. And their model is now proliferating around the country. How many of you have lived near a movie theater you can have a meal in? Yeah, look at that. Yeah, so that's really in the last 10 years been a dramatic change. But I think it represents our expectation that almost wherever you go now there should be food available. And that you shouldn't have to choose between the eating and the doing of your activity. Few more statistics about the snacking habit. Um, a lot of our eating now occurs in midday hours when museums are open and doing programming. We know about this from the need to have cafes and other amenities, um, but also the, just the general expectation of finding food when you're hungry. And another nice graphic that splits out the day in terms of how much eating happens at each day. And I should note that this is an average, and in this same report, though I couldn't get an image, it broke it down by generations, and this average um, doesn't hold for younger generations, millennials and younger, that actually um, have higher percentages of the mid-morning, lunch, mid-afternoon, and after-dinner snacks. So those become even stronger than the meal occasions. And uh, finally, just a note about water. The, how many of you ban water bottles in your museum? Is there anyone still doing that? So it's becoming rarer and rarer to say no water. Michelle, could you share your anecdote about the museums in Phoenix and water? You bet. Um, providing or, water in Phoenix is an ordinance. Um, because of our climate, we are not allowed legally to deny people free water. We have to have it available for every event. We have to have it available in every space. And so, um, you know, the idea of banning water in the museum isn't even an option for us. Um, which is kind of interesting because it makes it very a, a place-based rule, if you will. But climate and location certainly have a factor in, in, in that particular um, uh, question. Uh, but as I was looking for some commentary about it, it comes up quite a bit in uh, this is TripAdvisor and websites like this where, as you can see, someone's asking about their elderly companion or older companion who really needs water to not be overcome by the heat or the fatigue. Uh, so that's something that is, seems to be changing quite a bit, that water is now acceptable. But of course, as you invite water, you also invite those challenges from visitors to say, well, I have tea, there's no sugar and it's just tea, it's not water, or I have vitamin water, or 
or that sort of thing. So it begins to kind of create a slippery slope discussion, which again goes to Michelle's earlier point about how do we communicate to visitors what the boundaries are. A second topic that influences how people think is food tourism. And this is a growing industry, a growing field, and a growing focus for travelers. As you can see, there's some uh, food statistics here about people's interest in food experiences, not just as they're traveling somewhere they need to grab a meal, but that the food in a location might be the reason that they're traveling. So they're interested in pick your own farms, in food festivals, in special dining opportunities, and learning about the history of a food and the community and culture that surrounds it. Um, and the second statistic describes the growing interest in food and people really believe, uh, the majority of people, 81%, believe learning about food and drink when they visit a destination is an important part of understanding the local culture. So it's a key to the things that we're seeking to interpret and perhaps a reason that our visitors have arrived on our doorsteps. Um, food tourism is a big, complex industry, but we have a place in it as museums. As you can see up on the right there, there's a little circle for identity, heritage, and culture, um, as well as some other topics we might interpret, like creativity and innovation, such as caramel M&Ms in Topeka. Um, this is our wheelhouse, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about food topics, but when we do, we might be inviting in the expectation that we'll provide some of that food. and illustrate those cultural aspects through tastings or through food itself on display. Airbnb in recent years has introduced the notion of Airbnb experiences where travelers can sign up for food activities when they go around the world. So not just book your room, but book a chance to go through a local market with someone who lives there, um, to harvest seaweed on the coast of Ireland, to try a unique restaurant. Uh, again, food becoming more of a focus of a trip than just a side lane. And finally, we might want to look at food purely for its interpretive value in our settings. We understand how powerful a topic it is. This is my little plug, but yeah, I wrote a book all about food in museums because I think it is so important. It's a gateway topic, um, but not just a gateway that you use to move people onto other topics. Through food, you can really illustrate and understand things like uh, geographical conditions, historical events, identities and cultures, um, poverty and hardship, as well as affluence and wealth, um, why cities are where they are, struggles between communities. So food is uh, something that human history cannot be written without, and it's an important one for us to be interpreting. It's meaningful, it's universally accessible, and it's revealing. Um, art museums have been struggling with this too, so we're not alone in history museums in wanting to present food. This is a well-known in the art world exhibit by an artist called Felix Gonzalez Torres, and it comes to the museum as a set of instructions that basically say, go out and buy 1,000 pounds of wrapped individual candy and put it in a pile in the gallery. And so many museums have shown this. It's um, you're inviting visitors to take a piece of candy or a handful of candy and to eat it, and it's not about candy, it's a metaphor for the AIDS crisis. So the artist himself was interested in this idea of gradual disappearance 
um, and the participation of people in gradual disappearance, and that's the metaphor that he's inviting, but it really does mean that art museums have to have a big pile of candy on the floor, and yet it's um, a compelling exhibit that has been shown worldwide, and muse art museums have had to figure out how to handle that too. We find ourselves wandering into the topic of collections policy when we start talking about food in galleries. This uh, little illustration comes from the new book, Active Collections, that is terrific and I recommend it. And this book represents the result of a um, couple of decades now of thinking about whether our collections policies might be holding us hostage. It might be too strict for some of our settings or some parts of our settings. The uh, conventions that I mentioned earlier that came out of the world of fine arts and fine decorative arts that seek to protect from every crumb, spill, uh, or harm that might come with food are often very, very stringent and pre prevent us from doing the work that we would like to do with and for visitors. Sometimes, in some settings, it's possible to reinterrogate those policies. So you may have heard about some of the efforts to look at collections as potentially in tiers of very significant to much less sensitive. Um, as Michelle illustrated there in their bungalow space, they've been able to populate and install spaces with reproduction items, newly fabricated items, things from eBay um, that are not collection and not sensitive, but still create the environment that they're seeking. And that's a strategy that's becoming more common. But even with collections, there may be objects and spaces that are less sensitive than others. The um, desire to incorporate food might influence design from the ground up. This image is from the great um, Southern Museum of Food and Beverage, or SOFAB, or Southern Food and Beverage Museum, SOFAB for short. Um, this it will soon be followed by the Pacific Food and Beverage Museum, so it's spawning offspring as we speak. But from the get-go, this fairly new museum, when they designed their core permanent exhibit, they said to themselves, there's no way we can have a food and beverage museum and then tell people they can't bring food into the gallery. So they designed their first floor core interpretive gallery to be food safe. Even though, as you can see, it's full of objects and it's very richly interpreted, they selected objects that are hard surface, like the ceramic crocs um, or the metal sinks and barbecue grills or um, heavy-duty wooden pieces. They displayed things so that they were more sensitive things were out of reach or behind a barrier. And they created surfaces and cleaning schedules that would support their use of food for events. So this couple is walking right through with their plate of food and enjoying both the live taste of real food and the environment that helps them learn more about it. In a couple of settings that I've worked, we've had different ways of incorporating food. These two are um, historic house settings from Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And on the left is the Wheelwright House there, which is an 18th century home that had originally been fully furnished with a decorative arts installation and in kind of classic way. And a fire caused us to pull everything out of there. And when we reinstalled it, we made the decision to reinstall it with all either reproduction furniture or items from the collection that were would have been deaccessioned, um, but were simply recategorized because they were not particularly significant. So we were able to furnish the house, but also to bring a live food demonstration into it. 
and every day uh, produce from the gardens is cooked for the public and with the public um, and we're not concerned about the impact on those artifacts. And on the right is the Shapiro House. It's a 1919 setting uh, telling the story of a Ukrainian Jewish family that came to live in the city uh, around that era after pogroms had driven them out. And as you can see from Mrs. Shapiro there, there's live cooking going on every day there as well. Differently than the Wheelwright House, the Shapiro House does contain original artifacts and family items, which are less replaceable. But the kitchen wing is separated by a hallway from the rest of the house, and through a long planning process, the curators determined that the impact of the cooking could be isolated enough from the object displays that they would be safe. That house has a pretty rigorous cleaning schedule, and also the choices of what is cooked there are run through that filter of um, curatorial and collections management to ensure that they're not creating um, vapors or grease kind of spreading through the air that would be able to travel further. So the selection of what happens there is also subject to review, but um, we do have those happening in the same house as the objects. And I'm currently at the Tenement Museum in New York City. I'm very new there, but one of the things that thrilled me the most about joining the museum was their um, food programming. And they've been really renowned for including and incorporating food in many ways, although not in the historic tenement building itself. Those displays, even though they are, they're pretty, I'm going to say they're pretty rich displays of what food would look like. It's all faux food, and we don't invite people to bring beverages or food on the tour with them except for water. Um, but that's not because of the preciousness of the objects. It's really understanding that we are in New York City, and there are rats, and there are roaches, and we don't want any of those in our exhibits. So that is really the driving force. And I think in terms of policy, thinking about what risk you are protecting against may be a good step toward breaking down some of that rigidness. Um, are we pr protecting against art theft? That's one set of standards. But are we protecting against rats and roaches? It's a different set of standards, and we can apply different standards to different settings, depending on how we're identifying what the specific threat might be. So some of the strategies in use at the Tenement Museum include talking about food and eating food on tours of the neighborhood. So we're lucky to be in a downtown setting with a historic neighborhood right nearby, and you could walk a few blocks and We've worked with local immigrant businesses to provide samples, and guests can nosh a little bit as we describe how the neighborhood changed and how these immigrant businesses created the food culture we know today. We are also extremely fortunate in having a fairly new building that was built with food in mind that contains the offices and classrooms for the museum. And the picture on the left, it's a little hard to make out, but you can see in the left-hand corner a countertop that contains a stove, a dishwasher, um, a basic demonstration kitchen. So we're able to use that in food programming and have cooking demos come in and someone might be demonstrating something you can see in the house displays um, but not eat there. However, you can come right next door and enjoy it, much, much as in Phoenix. So we've gone through a lot of thoughts and ideas here. Um, and I, as I said, as I started, we don't necessarily have the new policy or all of the answers. What we hope to do today was raise some questions about whether we can and should accommodate more food in our gallery settings. And should we draw the hard line and just say no, never? Or should we recognize more seriously the changing culture around food and food habits? 
our own desire to interpret food and our dependence on some kind of policy to guide us. So we have a lot of questions here that we'd like to open up to our group today to talk about in our, our remaining time. And so we're intending to throw this back to you. And these questions are all open, so you could pull up anyone that you care to talk about, and we'll see if we can compare some notes. Uh, I don't know everyone in the room, but I know we have a few faces here of people who are definitely doing some of this work and might have insight to share with one another. Um, so, yeah. We may have to have them come up because of the recording. Yeah, you can either come up or we'll repeat your question on the recording so our session can be preserved for posterity. Um, are there any questions here that, that yes? Mm-hmm. So um, the question, are there, consequences. Yeah, what are some of the consequences of incorporating food, financial, staffing, marketing, and audiences? And did you want to suggest any answers to that or, or ask for some thoughts? <laughs> so how about incorporating food into a setting such as the African American Firefighters Museum? Yes. Um, I, I can also mention, actually I think that's a really good point. One of the difficult stories in our house is pulling in diverse narratives. And food is an obvious way that you can start some of those conversations. Um, one of the interesting artifacts that we have in our collection is a tortilla press that does date from sometime around the turn of the century. Um, it was found in the attic when the house was restored. We're not sure exactly who it belonged to or who used it. Um, but recently, we have deaccessioned it. Um, there was some pushback on that, but the point was people wanted to touch it so badly and to look at it and to see how it worked. We felt like it was really an important piece um, to help tell that story. And, you know, I think that you do have to address the consequences, as you mentioned. In our particular house, pests are always a problem, but it's 125 years old. They're always going to be a problem. But $75,000 of wallpaper, that's what we worry about more with spills and that kind of thing. So, you know, you have to find that happy medium between where, you know, which artifacts can be perhaps deaccessioned and used to introduce some of those broader narratives and then what, where are the areas that you really need to protect because if you lose that, and in our case it's things like wallpaper, our organization would not have the capacity to, to replace that. Um, 
And so I, I think it's always an if this, then that, um, weighing those priorities. And that's one way that we've dealt with both of those issues that, that you ladies bring up. Yes, start here. I think that's a great point. And it, speaking to consequences, if we know there are going to be financial consequences because we need more custodial support or more cleaning supplies or more pest control for a short period of time, it may be easier to argue to budget for that and contain that within a short time period than forever. Um, and it, the other thing that occurs to me as you speak is I'm sure many of you have had this experience where there's one set of standards for the public operation, but another for special events in gallery settings, and sometimes that can feel unfair and perhaps not uh, the best for the public as well not to access that. But perhaps by defining these sort of varying sets of standards that need to be applied and or don't, it sort of opens up your options for what you can invoke if you'd like to do something unusual for a short period of time, almost as if it were the special event standards. So creating those parameters under which for a short term period you can do something different may be a way for you to make more official the uh, protocols that could be put into place. Thanks for that great idea, yeah. I think that's an excellent point, talking about marketing and be able, being able to talk about the fact that you have food. Um, that last slide that I showed, that um, the, the food offering we have in the bungalow where we do allow food, we moved our retail operations into that space. Um, a year ago, when our retail operations were in the carriage house, uh, summer uh, earned income on that space was between $500 and $1,000 a month. When we introduced food July 1st of this year, that income doubled. Yeah. Um, 
and if you look at other models, say malls, when food is introduced, people stay at a site longer. Um, and it was risky for us. We weren't sure that we really wanted to go there, but it has really paid off. And the fact that we're able now to tell people there is food available, you can grab a picnic and go sit on the lawn or stay here um, in this air-conditioned space and enjoy a snack has made a huge difference in our earned income for the museum store operations. Uh, yes, first, closest um, to me. I was just wondering if you could comment on food safety issues with um, historic demonstrations. I can field that one to start, and I'm sure other expertise is in the audience. Um, so in my work with food, this is an, something that I've encountered a lot as a sort of sense of fear or um, the notion that it's completely impossible to do food demonstrations or tastings in historic settings and environments. And I think the, the first step is to take a look at what actual requirements you locally have. Uh, because the sense that we can't is very pervasive, but as you, in fact, begin to investigate your local setting, you may find out that there's much more latitude than you had thought. And so the very, very first step, if you haven't done that already, is to get on the phone to your municipal health inspector, uh, whichever department handles that in your vicinity, uh, and perhaps some of you may have a county or state level to work with as well. But to begin the relationship not at a time of crisis and not two days before your big event, um, but just a get to know you uh, conversation. Invite them out to your site, you talk to them about the educational purpose of what you do, the economic impact of the museum, all that good advocacy, and um, how you present food and would like to see what's possible with visitors and offering them a, a menu of things you might like to do, like have tastings of food in a demonstration or host events. And as they can begin to understand your purpose and also the scale and scope of the operation, sometimes they're eager and happy to work with you or to create a special dispensation for a historic site. Um, I've known that to happen in a few settings now. Uh, because to a food, uh, food safety inspector or food health professional, one of the things they think about is the scale of an operation, and it's a very different thing to be in a fast food business that serves 1,200 people a day versus a historic site that's talking about a plate of cornbread you know, every Sunday or something like that. So they'll be thinking about that because their job is to analyze risk, and our sites tend to be really low risk in pure terms of numbers, um, so that it may not be, they may not be starting from no. Um, that being said, there are some out there that do start from no, it's a cautious profession. So if you're hearing, um, no, this is not a place that people can eat food, then you can start to begin to work with them around what the regulations are. And one great site that I always reference is Old Sturbridge Village. They've gone through this process and carefully worked with their local authorities. And they've ended up agreeing on a few things that um, have opened up possibilities for them, even in a pretty strict environment. So one thing that they do is have, um, they rent a commercial kitchen for a few days in, I think it's the winter, they have both staff and volunteers come and do a huge bake-off in this commercial kitchen, and they make cookies, cornbreads, um, all the you know, various recipes that will freeze well, put them in freezers and hold them in their um, cafeteria kitchen, and then uh, whatever regular basis that they want to serve, they get these commercially prepared safe foods out, and they're cooking on the hearth here, and they have their food safe food there, and they put on plastic gloves to give them to the audience. And of course, when this was first introduced, many of the interpreters were dead set against plastic gloves because of breaking the illusion and all of that, and visitors honestly don't 
it doesn't matter to them. They're, they're happy to be tasting, and we're able to suspend our disbelief about things like that and understand that we are modern people um, doing historical work. So I would first say, um, you know, to reference some of these sites that have had success with brokering this kind of relationship, don't assume you can't do anything because you might um, be very surprised at what's possible when you enter that environment as a peer and share with them what your hopes are. And you can start to build a plan that might um, they might support. Another tip I've gotten from Tanya Brock, who uh, also is interested in this, and she's a certified food handler and preservationist, is that most um, in most states there are certifying bodies that do food safe certification for food handlers. So you know, if you're going to be a barista or what have you, you have to get this certificate. Sometimes it's a short class, sometimes it's online, and you can offer to your local authorities we'll send all our interpreters to your food handling class and then you'll know that they understand the risk and they're capable of doing this safely. It might be something like you need to install hand washing sinks. You know, there, may, there are probably ways that you can work with the legal environment. Um, but just get, I just encourage everybody to get started and don't wait, don't wait for the problem to happen or for the sudden need. Does anyone else have experience with that that you'd like to share, Megan? It's a great tip, and, and you've seen the difference between no no faux food and faux food in the response. Mm. Um, you can actually see that people lived here. It wasn't just a static space. 
great suggestion. It also reminds me of um, the use of scent in some places as well, which can evoke some of those sensory pieces without being food itself. Any other thoughts, experiences to add? Yes, David. Uh. And Wade House, um, historic site on Wisconsin, and, and all three environments, OSC, Wade House, and now Village Farm, we I have experience in um, a participatory food program, so it's a public um, feed program, usually dinner programs primarily, um, and tremendously successful within the historic environment. Mm. That's great, and you know, you've been doing lots of innovative things around food with your site, and uh, agreeing about the historic environment being an incredibly powerful setting for food programming, and it goes to the earlier comment about that carving out a time and place where it can happen, maybe with extra cleaning and prep protocols, but then the um, minimization of potential damage because it's not every night, and yeah, that's really beautiful. Any other thoughts? We haven't heard much um, pushback. Is there anyone concerned about object safety um, that would just say we, we can't afford to do this? Well, we've got, uh, yes. I just know for a fact not easy and it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, we do it on an exception basis where, you know, if somebody's pregnant or, or, you know, we have an elderly person, you know, our staff does make an exception, but um, I guess unfortunately, you know, having water in the gallery, we do have places where we do have food upstairs. So we have places for people to go if there's an issue, but yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I think it's going to be you know a hard sell in some places like ours mm -hmm. to say yeah you can bring your your food and water into the gallery. And it may be that you don't tackle it all at once or in every setting and every moment, um, but. If, depending on their level of receptivity of your particular staff, some of those resources um, around active collections or what's been called the Rembrandt rule can be helpful. It's like every object doesn't need to be a Rembrandt, and you can Google that up. Uh, past history news articles deal with that. Um, and I had one other thought to share about that. Uh, if, if collecting or, I'm sorry, collections management policy is coming up for regular review, an accreditation process is coming up, steps, um, these are all opportunities you might have to say, hey, can we look at this again uh, from a policy standpoint? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what it requires is a more careful, thoughtful analysis. 
<laughs> we don't know anything about that artifact. Mm -hmm. right. The other stuff where we can trace it back to a founding family in our community, well, you know, we know what those things are and we know you know protect that, which is probably not the case anyway. Um, so by looking more more thoughtfully at what's in our galleries and what the risks are, I'm realizing we can make an experience that is much more comfortable and much more engaging, not just in terms of the content people experience, but the environment in which they're experiencing it. Mm. Um, I think that's a really good point that saying no is very easy um, and I'm sort of on the fence with you you know do I see food being served in the Rawson house in the next year not a chance um, it's something that's going to take time it isn't that I mean we're starting to think about it we're starting to acknowledge the changing needs of our guests but it is not going to happen overnight and it's going to take a long educational process um, from the top all the way down and so until we can get to that point and be thoughtful about it um, and change our policies to where they accommodate uh, a different model. It just, um, it, it, nothing seems to move as quickly as you want it to. It's, but it's we can, kind of yeah, you know, exactly. We're, we're used to safety risks or insurance risks or things mm. like that. And, uh, oh, yes, please go. I was just going to say, I wonder where you draw the line, though. I mean, it's one thing somebody's got their cracker that they want to walk through because they need to see a new cracker or something. But if somebody says, oh, well, I'm just going to bring in my lunch and sit here on the floor <laughs> and put, have a little picnic spread here because I need fresh food. So where do you draw the line of that's okay, but that's not? We at the park, we have festivals because it is an entire city block. Um, those lines, that is very difficult because when there are 25 food trucks out there and 30,000 people walking around with their greasy French fries and their kebabs, um, do we even allow them on the porch? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that also has to be part of the conversation because when there is damage, it's extremely costly. And so, yeah, where is that line? And that I think connects to this point that there's work associated with these policy changes and with these pilots and experiments. And it, it probably was a labor saving uh, device to not, to just create a blanket prohibition on food within gallery settings. And so I think as you contemplate uh, perhaps opening up or trying some new things, it's a work planning process of committing some time and resources to the long, slow, sitting around a table and saying, where's our line? You know, where where's the curator's line, collections manager line, where's the educator line, where's our public PR facing line? Uh, because that can only be worked out within the institution and its own tolerances. So, and then putting in place the protections that you may need, that additional cleaning resource, the perhaps barrier staging or whatever else you might have to spend money and time on, um, it, it doesn't come free. So I think that that's an important thing to call out as one of the things that these hardline policies have done is save us some effort, but perhaps that comes at the expense of what visitors experience. And one of the points that Mary I know would be making if she were here is her um, strong value of hospitality being welcoming and being welcoming again to generations of people who really now expect to carry that coffee everywhere. Um, we, if we can find ways to avoid being in the position of always saying no or always scanning the crowd for the evildoer with the granola bar, um, then we might position ourselves as more welcoming institutions as well.
Any other thoughts, responses, questions? Well, I. Yeah, I think so. Everyone probably has travel today or a tour. Um, all I, I would say to wrap up, I think, is that we're obviously in an ongoing discussion and in a time of change, as we always are in a time of change. This moment um, is calling on us to, I think, be a little more creative and a little more experimental with our approaches. But um, I've never... There are lots of experiences with food out there. They do have to be carefully managed, but um, I've never found anything that creates such a, a warm and um, connected feeling among visitors as being able to be part of a food experience in a museum setting. And when you talk about wanting to bring history to life, there are a few things that do that so well as doing the thing that keeps us alive on a daily basis in that setting and giving them that memory and something of substance to add to it the next time they're around a table. Um, thank you all for coming and for sharing your experiences and insights, and I think we would welcome more discussion or contacting us at any point and stay uh, in touch about food. Thanks for coming, and have a great safe trip back. And we have a lot more M&Ms, so please come, help yourself, stock up for your trip, <laughs> make friends.
guys like are good that. teachers. I like that. I don't know what I'm doing now, but uh -oh. it's all good. Each other. <laughs>